0: Hello, and welcome to this Life Changes podcast. You are now listening to one of our Sunday messages. If you'd like to know more about Life Changes, you can visit us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Now lean in and enjoy. Thank you. Are we on? I think we are. Um, I was going to introduce myself, but basically Gabe has done that. So, as you know, I'm Malcolm, and my beautiful wife Michelle is not here. She's, I think she's at the back of the kids. And we've been part of Life Changes for 16 years now, so we go back quite a way. And uh, I was also going to relate that same story. That morning that I met Gabe, he um, had asked me if I could just spend some time with him, and we chatted in the week, and due to work constraints, I couldn't meet Gabe during the week. So on the Saturday morning, I arrived, we were at the beachfront in Table View, and I happened to be wearing a Man United track top, so... The immediate sort of introduction was rather awkward for a moment. Yeah. Uh, and then, <laughs> but uh, it didn't take long before we were chatting. And, and literally, we chatted for, for an hour and a half about, about the good things of sport. And of course, I was wearing Man United paraphernalia, as you do, because they're the best team in the world. But, and that's the truth, I'm up here, so I can no. say that. <laughs> but um, I truly just want to say to, to Gabe and Fee, it's incredible, together with you guys, what is going on here. You know, The stories that keep coming across the flay to table view are stories of, of health, of life, yeah. of growth, of what God is doing, baptisms, conversions, and it's quite emotional for me to be honest, to stand here and see what God is doing in you. Yeah. So excuse me for, for a moment, but it's when I met this young ginger ninja from Zimbabwe... <laughs> He, was, he had a loud mouth and he had a lot to say but deep inside is a passion for Jesus Christ and a passion for the local church being the answer to the world's problems. And not just the world's problems but the answer to the world. And that to me, Gabe, you've carried that through your entire life. I just, I just mentioned as a reminder that your daughter has just been born and my little boy is three. So just putting it out there, that's... <laughs> I'm not averse to arranged marriages, so if anybody wants to sort of have any... I've got dibs on that, please, so don't. But this morning, um, we're looking at the road towards Easter, and this morning is called Eternity in Our Hearts. And in essence, if we, if we think about our lives as Christians, I'm holding my Bible up to illustrate that we want to live as Christians under the authority of God's Word. Okay, I think if we ask the world... What the final authority is in the lives of the world, probably more appropriate for me to hold up my phone, because it's social media, it's friends, it's the camera on the iPhone 7, which is awesome. (laughs) So I sometimes worship at this altar too. But I think it's very important for us to understand and remind ourselves as we start that we live under the authority of this Word, of the Word of God, and it's important as we, as we look through some of the things we're going to look through this morning that that is our starting point as well as our finishing point. On, it's not just something that we reference when we need it. Yep. It's something that we live by, we walk by, and we build our lives by. Yep. And in our modern world today, I think I'm going to start by just reading some words from a book that was written 150 years ago. A guy by the name of Charles Dickens, anybody recognize that name? Yep. <laughs> and he wrote a book called A Tale of Two Cities, and it was, he wrote it about the time of the French Revolution. But it's incredible how prophetic these words are to our world today, and in particular our country. Our country is going through turmoil. Sometimes we hardly know where to turn and who to speak to. But it's important that we maintain a course that is towards Jesus. But this is what he wrote 150 years ago. These are the opening lines of his book. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. And those words, as we think about our world right now, and especially the last 50 years, I would say the last 50 years, in terms of the change in our world, have been seismic. They have been, it's been like an earthquake, but a lot of these things have almost crept up quietly on the church and on our culture to the point that in some areas the church has been taken by surprise and almost our culture is moving so quickly that we're battling to absorb these changes. And most of these revolutions and changes are just accelerating, they're actually not slowing down. And we're going to go through a couple of them that have actually made as parts this massive change. Firstly, let's highlight some of these. The sexual revolution that began in the 1960s was in essence a movement of freedom without having to answer to anybody about my behavior. Now that started in the 1960s, but it's continued and developed almost on its own. Secondly, the breakdown of the traditional family and the rise of the alternative family. And that, again, is part of the sexual revolution that has unraveled and has grown and is an immense change in our world. Thirdly, the redefinition of marriage. And now it's seen as a contract no longer a covenant because a contract can be broken. A covenant cannot be broken. We'll be talking about covenant more a bit later. And it's no longer just between a man and a woman. And a lot of people are kind of saying that, even within the church, that the church has survived so many of these little blips. So we don't have to worry too much because we'll get through this one. But this one is a little bit different because for thousands of years, the pillar of most civilized societies has been the understanding of marriage. And now that that is changing, it's slowly but surely changing what the pillar of our civil society is all about. And it's for so many generations, has been seen as the stability that props up a nation. The rejection of authority is another one. And this has happened politically, it's happened culturally, it's happened socially. Now, here we have to say, in some ways, it's it's quite a logical response to some of the leadership that we have seen in the last hundred years. We have to admit that, that some of the leadership has been shocking, and there's been this, this radical revolution in response saying, I'm not under your authority anymore. I am my own person. So there's something we can understand about that, but the issue of authority has been jettisoned. The next thing is the increasing rights of the natural world, and this is also a reaction in the way that the planet has been destroyed in so many areas. But now it's being taken. Often the pendulum swings one way, and it swings right the other way, almost too far. And some, some examples of this. In Bolivia, there's a law that has been promulgated about the rights of Mother Earth. And two in particular, two rivers... The Wanganui and the Ganges have been given the rights of natural persons, the same rights that you and I have, these rivers have been given. So the, the issue comes if, if now if the river is, is flowing and they want to make, and, and the river needs a tributary and it comes through people's houses, that river has the same standing as the person who owns the house. Therefore, who's going to win that battle? You, you see which, which way this is going and the incredible changes that are happening so quickly. And again, we understand the reaction, but the problem is. When we take creation and put it on the same platform as the created order of man that God has instituted, we begin to worship creation and not the creator. And that's when the trouble begins. And the last one is the rise of the rights of the individual. You see, when the individual has rights that they want to establish themselves, they begin to reject community and they bring division because they want only what they want without the inclusion of others. And again... Our biblical understanding of how we live is within community. Now, most of these changes are, if we look at them, they are revolutions of the individual. It's almost as if the individual is shaking his or her fist at God and saying, I don't want that authority in my life anymore. I do not even want to know that there is an authority out there. And what has it led to? In essence, what it's led to, the world is trying to say to us, you are your own person. You make your own decisions. And you are allowed and able to live as freely as you like. So the world wants to grant us freedom, to give us freedom, but to remove the ability to make the choices of that freedom. Does that make sense? So they want us to be completely free, but they don't want the responsibility and the the background and the methodology with working out how to make the best decisions for your life. And the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor described three phases of development of Western thought. And this relates directly to Christian belief, which again is part of this impact. And he described through three different ages, the first one being the pre-modern age. He said the pre-modern age, which was right up to 1600, he said was a time when it was almost impossible not to believe in God. Because wherever you went, people had an understanding of God, they had a faith, they had a belief that they followed, and they followed that diligently. Then came pre-modernity. Sorry, modernity. And after 1600, right up to about the year 1980, he calls modernity. And he says, during those years, it became optional not to believe in God. But since then, from 1981 until now, in essence, we're talking about post-modernity. And now, he's saying that in our world, it's almost impossible to believe. That's what we've been told. And so increasingly, the questions that are being thrown at us from the world are ones that the world is going to say, for goodness sake, you don't still believe that stuff. And it's not something that's happened overnight. This has been hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years that we are now getting this question thrust at us. Why do you believe those old stories? So we need to know why we believe. And in confusion, the result is confusion. So the world literally is is now underpinned by a consistent and constant uncertainty about absolutely everything. There's no t- real moral point of north anymore if we think about it. And in contrast to that, the important thing we have to remember is that truth matters and that our faith is based on historical, clear, divine truth. And we have this the knowledge of that in the sense that it's true based on God's revelation to his creation through the prophets, through his written word, through his son. It was confirmed by the life of Jesus Christ and the ministry of the apostles. And this is incredibly important. There's more physical evidence in terms of what's being written down and recorded that Jesus Christ lived than that Julius Caesar lived. With Julius Caesar, there are approximately 1,500-odd documents. Again, this is going from memory. For... The Gospels around Jesus Christ and fragments of, of the original um, writings that go very close to those times, there are over 10,000 about the life of Jesus Christ. And yet people will say to you, do you still believe that stuff? But the reason why the Christian faith is foundationally true is because directly of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Yeah. You see, this is what made the difference. This was not just a letter that was written or a book that was written about a God up there. This is about a God who actually entered our human existence. The incarnation of Jesus Christ means that he presented himself into his creation to demonstrate and prove the truth of Scripture, and it brought a kingdom of sacrifice and servitude. That's another thing which is so important. Because he did not say, take more for yourself. He said, leave your nets. He said, let the dead bury the dead. He said, follow me and leave what you are doing in your old life and serve ultimately others. So he testified to the Old Covenant by showing that he was the fulfillment of that covenant. John 1 verse 14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. It's very important that especially at Easter time we understand the Incarnation because it is through the Incarnation that the body arrived that was broken at the cross for you and me. So, he has some points about the Incarnation. Firstly, that Jesus was the pre-existent divine Logos, which is Greek for word. He was pre-existent. We often think that Jesus arrived when he was born. He did not. He was part of the triune Godhead. He, was, he, he lived with God and he entered our space and time as a baby and was born at that stage. But he always existed. He is the eternal pre-existent word. Secondly, he was God the Son and he became the Son of the Father when he was born by taking on human body and human nature. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary. The the immaculate conception, which is what we call it, is so important because the seed that produced him had to be perfect so that the sacrifice could be perfect. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully human. His two natures are joined and we call that a hypostatic union. The union of God and man in the flesh in Jesus Christ. And the important thing is no other religious system even matches this. That the one who demanded the sacrifice for sin to reconcile himself with his creation was the one who was prepared to go to the cross and die. There is no other religious system that even comes close to matching that claim. And it's incredibly important. Now as we approach this Easter time, and we remember his death, we will take a look this morning at two passages. The one is from when Jesus broke bed with his disciples, and the other one is when Jesus was on the cross, which explain and outline what his death meant for us, for each individual, and for everybody in the world. And the first one is in Matthew 26, verse 26. And next weekend we celebrate Easter. And Easter is what the Jewish nation used to celebrate as the Passover. And what we're going to read now happened on the Thursday evening of Easter weekend. And Jesus gathered his disciples together and he prepared the meal for them to break bread together. And this is what happened. Let's read from verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take and eat. This is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant." which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now, in many ways, communion, or the Lord's Supper, is the central act of our Christian worship because it focuses on the death of Christ and what He did for us and the world. And it's crucial that we remember His death and what it means for us individually and corporately. And we need to understand what that death brought into being And secondly, what it calls us to. And so the first point, when we share the Lord's Supper, what do we remember? We remember, first of all, that the new covenant was established by Jesus Christ. Hebrews says, therefore, he's the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since the death has occurred that redeems them from the transgression under the old covenant. You see, when we walk around in our world without Christ, we are still under the law of the old covenant. (coughs) And it's only the death that Jesus brought that established a new covenant. And the fascinating thing here was that the Jewish people who became Christians did not understand what was going on. Because they understood that they were the chosen people under the old covenant. Suddenly they were being told that the dirty Gentile was now allowed the same inheritance. So for you and me, that is absolutely unbelievable. That we were grafted in to the chosen people of God and given the same inheritance through Jesus Christ. He was the one who opened the door of salvation for you and me. Secondly, his blood paid the penalty that I deserved. And Hebrews again, Hebrews 9, 11. When Christ appeared, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And the sadness of the moment, again, I'm very averse to violence. I don't like blood. I'm skittish at the dentist. These are kind of things that I stay away from. I don't like fights. I never got into fights at school. I was too scared. I was too skinny. I was too small. Gabe will will vote with me. But so when it comes to thinking about this, that blood had to be shed, it would be important which we haven't got time to do, to go into the Old Testament and understand why that was. But sacrifice, for the sacrifice to be to be accepted, blood had to be shed. In the Old Testament, constantly offered, constantly sacrificed. But then Jesus' blood had to be shed. And if we don't understand this properly, we often minimize sin. Because in order for, if we think about God's holiness for a second, yeah. God's holiness on one hand, my for sinfulness on the other, that gap is so large. And when I think about holiness, if I think about a moment that was the sweetest point of my entire life, think of a moment when, perhaps it's the beginning of the holidays, and there's that crisp summer air, and you, you're you on a cycle, the world is just good. You feel the sweetness of life. Does that make sense? Think of those moments that for you almost kiss you on the cheek, and you feel this is what life is. Now think of life being like that permanently. Think of everything around you only being goodness, truth, beauty. No No hardship, no pain. No suffering. That is who God is. That is who he is in his nature. Not just in what he does. Evil cannot exist around God. So I take his holiness and I take my sin and I think about how far that gap is. What bridged that gap was the blood of one man, Jesus Christ. Nothing else could satisfy. And what Jesus then did, he established a covenant in his blood. Now we talk about covenants again. Covenant is not a contract. A contract can be breached and broken. But a covenant is a promise. It cannot be broken. It was established for you and me to be pulled into the life-giving nature of his sacrifice. Thirdly, he achieved for us forgiveness of sins, eternal security, and a future with Christ. And in Colossians we read, having been buried with him in baptism. And these are the stories that I've loved about Milton we buried with him in baptism. That's why it's such a significant act. Our sins are buried with him, and we are raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. When we share in the Lord's Supper, it is a demonstration of the fact that we receive forgiveness in his death, and that covers sins past, present, and future. But we're also raised to a new life in the power of the resurrection. And the primary power, I believe, of the resurrection is for us to live a life victorious over sin. We're going to get into into a few examples of the other things that people think salvation brought them. But I believe the power especially is to conquer sin and live a life of righteousness. And the fact that we are forgiven allows us to approach the throne of confidence of that holy God as a son or a daughter. And that's absolutely an incredible promise. Now we're going to look at the second passage, which happened in history the very next day. So Jesus then had... Uh, the Lord's Supper with his disciples then he actually identified that one of them would betray him that particular person Judas left to go and organize the betrayal later that night he was approached by the Roman soldiers he was arrested and then he was taken to be, to be put on trial first by the Jews and it was amazing as they to read those discussions around him they were saying he's, he's, he's committed blasphemy because he says that he is the son of God And Jesus admitted that. He says, I am. He says, I'm also the king of the Jews. So they wanted to crucify him. They then sent him to the Roman court under Pilate. Pilate's wife says to him, do not have anything to do with the blood of an innocent man. She actually identified that Christ was innocent. And she said to Pilate, do not do this. So Pilate washed his hands off the whole affair and walked away and said, who do you want to be released to you? And they asked for Barabbas, who is another criminal And they said, crucify him, as Gabe was saying. And I hear my own voice with those, crucify him. Because he went against everything religious of that day. He was nailed to the cross next to two criminals. And this is what we read. This is about three in the afternoon on that Friday, which we celebrate next weekend. One of the criminals who was hanged or crucified railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. This murderer and thief had lived the life of crime. There's another historian from the early church who said he was not just a petty thief. He lived in the desert and he would murder and steal from anybody who came across his path. He was not just a small-time thief. And something had arrested this man's heart that on the cross he sees Jesus and he knows what is going on here. The Holy Spirit enabled him to recognize the King of Kings. And in Jesus' weakest point, This man sees a conquering king. I think that is absolutely amazing. And he trusts Jesus at that moment, and he places his eternal security in Jesus' hands. He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now what does this mean for you and I? That a career criminal meeting Christ can have his past sins erased. That to me is an absolutely mind-blowing concept. So for you and me, it means that your past has been redeemed by Jesus Christ. There is no sin in the world that is greater than the grace and the power of Jesus Christ. Nothing. He, whatever he has done, it is over, it is finished. And what better message can there be for any of us? His blood washed away our sins. The second thing is that your present life is held in Jesus Christ. And 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we may become the righteousness of God. Now again, we speak about righteousness. This verse is unbelievable. It says that because of what Christ did in us, and because he is now in us, we have become the righteousness of God. The righteousness that he produced in his life, we have now become in the sight of God. The next thing is that your future is with Jesus Christ. So your past is dealt with, your present is in him, and your future is with him. As that thief identified, Jesus, you have prepared a place for me. Take me to your kingdom. He's going to do the same for you and me. In these uncertain days, we have to remember that our future is secure. It is certain. Now this knowledge of an eternal security should give us an outward look. It should give us a reason to actually serve others, to love others, and to bring others into their kingdom. But just... I want to just go through three examples of how people use salvation in very different ways to emphasize the fact that we exist for those who do not belong to us. We do not exist to sit as a holy huddle and just be here every week, clap each other on the back, have coffee, and go home. We are here and we live for others. So some people look at salvation firstly as fire insurance. So they simply want to avoid what they perceive as hell being, and they simply play the game. They stay in the game just to avoid hell. It's the insurance ticket. And the thing is, Jesus has very strong words for people like that. He said, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast our demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Our salvation is too precious to be held here just as a ticket to heaven. We have got to give it away. The second thing is health, wealth, and happiness. And I have to say strongly that this teaching is heretical. There is so much pervasive teaching about the fact that if you are saved, if you are a Christian, you have got to be wealthy. If you are not, there's something wrong with you. You have to have health all the time. You must never be sick. And you have to be happy all the time. And happiness, as we know, is temporary. We'll talk about joy later. But this is absolute nonsense. And I've often wondered to myself, why is it that there is so much of this pervasive teaching on the bookshelves of Christian churches and Christian bookshops wherever you go? And I have a theory. This is mine alone. I have no idea if this is true or not. But I believe that Christianity has had the tacit support and favor of Western governments for too long. And it's become fat and bloated in many areas of the church. And that has allowed us to allow these teachings to soak us up and to keep going. And again, I mentioned earlier, Jesus spoke about leave your family, leave your nets, pick up your own cross and follow me. He never said gather money. He never said you deserve to be rich. He never said these things. So where do they come from? They simply come from a church that has got fat and sat back and gone, what more can you give me? Because I'm sitting here and you are serving me. I am the center. And I'll bet you, as proof of this, that if you went to the Christian bookshelves of Christians in North Korea, China, and Russia, you will not find one such book on their shelves. Because I believe that they are living a life that is often much closer to the gospel and to Acts than what the Western church is in many areas of it right now. So we might increasingly find, the interesting thing is that these fat years, I hope those people have stored things up because I believe the lean years are coming. The changes I spoke about earlier are bringing pressure on the church, but the church's light shines brightest when it's under persecution. And I, I believe increasingly it's going to become more and more difficult for us to preach the light of the gospel in the world that is on its way. The last one is to serve me. Another way that people use salvation is to have themselves served. And much of this teaching, again, this is often you find on television, on podcasts, the incredible thing is that they say you've got to have victory in every area of your life. So if you pay money, we will, we will teach you how to have victory in every area of your life. And the problem is that this makes me the center of the gospel. It makes me the one that Christ came to serve. And so because I'm the child of the king and I'm walking in his favor, when I go to the mall, I need to get the parking place that is right outside the store that I want because I am the head and I am not the tail. Now if I think about the sacrificial life of Christ, I think the way we live the gospel is we park as far away from the entrance as possible to allow the older people to get closer so that we can serve them into the more. It's a stupid example. I'm not that creative. I'm sorry. But you get what I'm saying. We need to understand a life of sacrifice and not a life of I am king because we are not. And our charismatic culture, I hate to say it, can get a little bit carried away by irrelevancies. We need to focus on the gospel and what Jesus actually came and died for. So, the real joy in our hearts, and this is not happiness, joy comes through being an understanding that we are. it's rooted in the forgiveness of our sins by a bloody man on a cross, that we are restored and we have the privilege of being part of the redemption of all creation, of restored relationship with the one who created me, of loving and serving others, an everlasting relationship with the King of Kings. And in closing, I just want to quote Ecclesiastes chapter 3. This verse mixes the the incredible sovereignty of God with the fact that He has placed eternity with us. It says He has made everything beautiful in its time. That means no matter what you're going through, the sovereign God sees it, He knows it. He knows the end game, He knows the beginning. He will hold you in the middle. He has made everything beautiful in its time. And I have just gone through three months where an employee of mine lost two children and a father in three months. The 11-year-old boy was knocked over by a taxi. Her father died three weeks later of a heart attack. And just on Thursday, their five-year-old daughter who had two brain tumors passed away on the operating table. Now, how do we begin to deal with that without saying, Sovereign God... It's in your hands. You know the beginning. You know the end. You hold me in the middle. So I trust in you and in your sovereignty. He has made everything beautiful in its time, even that tragedy. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Now this is important. God created us for eternity. We have a soul. We're born with a soul which is eternal. That soul is going to live eternally in one of two places. But The reason why people search constantly to try and find what they're not sure they're looking for is because God put eternity inside of us before we even meet Him. That's why we search for Him. And it says, He has set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. We don't understand all of this, but we know that our response is important. So we are destined to search forever if we don't search in the right place. And my prayer is that we will be secure in the knowledge that He has won this this for us, the salvation for us, that we will use our salvation correctly Mm -hmm. and that we will understand what walking in the power of the resurrection means as we spread the gospel further and wider. Amen.